Using the Tongue for Good and Evil is the title of this sermon. Our text is James chapter 3 and the first 12 verses. Using the Tongue for Good and Evil. Now last Lord's Day, we looked at the second part of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, where among other things, we saw Solomon observing that there is no perfect man on this earth, no one who always does good and never sins. Solomon then applied that general truth to the tongue, and he tells us not to be too sensitive to the criticisms of other people around us because everyone sins with his words, including ourselves. On our text this morning, we see James really picking up on the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 and expanding on those thoughts. Now, some of us would know that this year marks the 55th anniversary of our Singapore Air Force. An open house was uh, recently held at uh, Pai Lebar Air Base, and some of the members of the public got to uh, enjoy joy rides in some of the aircrafts that our RSAF operates, such as the Chinook and the C-130. I was telling my son a few weeks ago that if I could choose which aircraft to ride in, I would be interested in flying in the Diamond DA-40 trainer aircraft, which our youth flying club operates currently. I then told him that the youth flying club has never had an incident before in all the many years that it has been in existence, no accidents. Although one time I almost broke that record. It happened almost 22 years ago when I was asked to attend a 10-hour uh, flying experience course with the Youth Flying Club. One of the interesting things that I learned and experienced was that when the aircraft is moving on the ground very slowly, you steer it with your feet using the rudder pedals. And when the aircraft is moving very slowly, you need to step really hard on the rudder pedals to get the plane to turn in the direction you want it to go. But when the aircraft is moving fast, that is a totally different thing altogether. And so it was at the end of one of the flights, I was allowed to perform the landing. And I touched down at the runway at about 120 kilometers per hour. And everything seemed to be going fine, but the aircraft was not perfectly aligned with the center line. And, uh, and I wanted to be a perfect landing. So I stepped on the rudder pedal to steer the nose in that direction. But I wasn't expecting the rudder to be so effective at high speed. I stepped way too hard on the rudder and the aircraft yawed sharply to the right and I was stunned. And my instructor who was a lady that day immediately screamed at me. And thankfully I took off my foot in time before any damage was done. Later during the debrief, I, I apologized to her. I told her I did not know that the rudder could be so effective and powerful at higher speeds compared to when it is taxiing. Thankfully, she was very nice about it and didn't make a big fuss. In verse 4, James writes about how large ships being driven about by powerful winds can yet be controlled and steered by the pilot in the right direction by a very small rudder. Indeed, the rudder is very small in size compared to the rest of the ship, but it can have a huge impact on the direction of the vessel. So to the tongue, which is very small in size compared to the rest of the human body, but it can have an enormous impact on our body, on our lives, uh, and on the lives of those 
around us, whether for good or for evil. Now, I'd like us to look at this passage in five sections corresponding to five things that we need to recognize with regard to the use of the tongue. Five things. First, verse 1, recognize the great responsibility of speaking and teaching the word of God. Secondly, in verse 2, recognize the importance of restraining the tongue. Third, in 3 to 5, recognize the great power of the tongue. Fourth, in 5 to 8, recognize how destructive and how uncontrollable the tongue is. And finally, verse 9 to 12, recognize how the tongue really reveals what is going on in our hearts. First, recognize the great responsibility of teaching God's word. James begins this famous section on the tongue with these words, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. The word translated master is didaskalos, which simply means teacher or instructor. Uh, it is a term often used of rabbis and of those who were teaching uh, in an official capacity uh, in the Old Testament church. This word, coupled with the fact that James uses the phrase, my brethren, indicates very clearly that he is not talking about just any kind of teaching or any teacher, but specifically about teachers and preachers of the word, those in the church who have been appointed to be teachers of the word. In the original, verse 1 literally reads, not many teachers become my brethren. James, giving emphasis to the fact that not many in the church should become teachers. Why? Well, he gives the reason, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And what he means is that teachers will be judged more strictly or they will be judged with a greater standard of strictness. Notice how James includes himself in this category. He says, knowing that we shall be judged more strictly. So not even the apostles or the inspired writers of the New Testament are exempted from this. Now we need to understand that James is not trying to hinder or to discourage those who have been genuinely called by the Lord to be the official teachers of the word. But he is discouraging those who are not called or those who desire to be teachers in the church simply because they, they think that uh, teaching in the church is a glamorous thing or it's a cool thing or nice thing to do. And furthermore, James is reminding those who are already teachers in the church to consider the seriousness and the gravity of what they are doing. You see, teaching the church is a great responsibility because it carries with it a great potential to do good or to do harm to the people of God. The words of the teacher will either promote the truth or else obscure it or even deny and distort it. And so with this greater responsibility comes greater expectation. Luke 12, 48, For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. Teachers in the church need to especially guard their tongue and their speech because their role requires them to be speaking a lot. And we know that the more a person says and he says and he speaks, the greater the possibility 
of saying things that might confuse or might lead astray or even discourage unnecessarily. Then another thing for us to consider is that there is a great need for the teacher or preacher to ensure that his life is consistent with his speech. It will do no good. In fact, it will do great damage if his speech is very beautiful, but his life is rotten. And so Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Notice the order. Take heed first to yourself and then to your speech or your doctrine that you are teaching. So brethren, we need to be much, much in prayer for those who are called to teach in this church and in other faithful churches and to recognize that they have a great responsibility and will be held accountable for more in the day of judgment. But this call to guard our speech is not restricted just to the teachers of the church. And so James goes on in verse 2 to address all believers, which brings us to the second part of the message on the great importance of restraining the tongue. Verse 2, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. The basic word, a meaning of the word offend is to stumble or to fall. James uses it as a metaphor for sin. He tells us that all of us stumble or all of us fall or sin in many ways. And this is especially true in the realm of our speech. And so James goes on to say, if anyone does not stumble or sin in the word, that is in what he says, then that man is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. James is talking about someone who is absolutely perfect and without any sin whatsoever. He is saying that the person who can fully control his tongue is also a perfectly sinless and flawless man who has, never, who has full mastery over his whole body. In other words, if you find someone who, who never ever sins with his lips or his words, then you really don't need to examine him further. You can be quite sure that the rest of his body or his life is in perfect order. It's a bit like finding someone who can solve very, very complex mathematical problems. You can be sure that he knows how to do simple addition and subtraction. You don't need to test him in those basic functions because he is already able to do highly complex things. And so James is saying that if you can find someone who has perfect control or mastery over his tongue, then you have essentially found an absolutely perfect or sinless person, which then also implies how important it is to restrain one's tongue. But before we can restrain the tongue, we need to learn more about it. And so in the next section from verses 3 to 5a, James writes about how powerful the tongue is. And he gives us two very vivid illustrations of the power of the tongue. The first comes from the world of horse riding, while the second from the world of marine engineering. First, horse riding. Verse 3, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth so that they may obey us. 
and be turned about their whole body. Now, for literally thousands of years, human beings have been using horses for all kinds of purposes, transportation, for sports, for battle, and for other users. But, you know, little has changed in terms of how one controls and directs the horse. James talks about putting bits in the horse's mouth to make it obey the rider. Uh, a bit is a small metal piece that is placed in the tongue of the, of the, in the mouth of the horse right on top of the, of the tongue. And then it is attached to the bridle and the reins on both sides of the horse. The bit, this little metal piece, then allows the rider to, as it were, communicate with the horse about things like direction and speed and so on. And it gives overall control of the animal to the rider so that by controlling the mouth, you control the head and in turn, you control the whole body of the horse. It would be very, very difficult, if not impossible, for the rider to control the horse without putting the bit in its mouth. Now, this illustration of a horse is particularly appropriate because James is talking, after all, about the tongue, about the importance of one's mouth and how the tongue, though a very small part of the body, nevertheless has a great impact on the whole person. Next, he illustrates the great power and influence of the tongue by bringing us to the world of nautical or marine engineering. Verse 4, also the ships, behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Large ships in the first century were about 50 meters long, and it could take several hundred people. We read, for example, in Acts 27 of the Apostle Paul in his journey to Rome and in a ship that could accommodate almost 300 people. Now, James would have known nothing about our modern-day luxury cruise liners or oil tankers or even aircraft carriers, which are much larger. But the interesting thing is this. Regardless of whether we're talking about smaller ships in the ancient times or very large modern ships, the size of the rudder is always relatively small in comparison to the rest of the ship. Even in those days, shipbuilders uh, knew that just a small control surface located right at the end of the ship was sufficient to steer the ship in the direction that it wanted to go. As I mentioned earlier, James doesn't just talk about a big ship in water, but about a big ship in the midst of a big storm being driven by fierce or strong winds. So not only does the rudder have to overcome the rotational inertia of the ship itself, it has to overcome the external hydrodynamic and aerodynamic forces imposed on the ship by the winds and the waves. And it is able to do so. James says at the end of verse 4 that the large ship in the midst of a large storm is steered by a very small rudder wheresoever the pilot wants it to go. So the comparison is this, that like the small bit in the horse's mouth and the little rudder at the rear of the ship, uh, the human tongue is very small, but it has great power to influence and to direct the course of a person's life. James concludes this section in uh, the first part of verse 5 
Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. The word boast here does not refer to something that's bad or negative. Uh, James is simply saying that the tongue can lay claim to having accomplished great things in human history, both good things and bad things. Or as one commentator says, history records tremendous achievements that have been inspired by words. Sad reality is that this great power of the tongue is often used for evil purposes, destructive things. And so we need, fourthly, to recognize how destructive and how uncontrollable the tongue can be. The second part of verse 5 reads, Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. So from horses to ships, James turns his attention to forest fires. The word translated matter in verse 5 literally means wood or, or forest. So James is saying, Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Again, the idea of something having very small and yet having a great impact uh, is there. But more than that, this impact is a disastrous one. Most of us here would have experienced for ourselves firsthand the effects of great forests set aflame by a small fire. I'm thinking of the haze problem that our region used to experience almost annually because of uncontrolled forest fires from neighboring countries. Thankfully, this year it hasn't come yet. Well, hopefully it wouldn't come. But the fire that the farmers used to burn the trees in order to clear the land is very small compared to the huge fire that eventually results from their actions. It's been said that a fire of a thousand acres can be started by just one small spark. Well, James says in verse 6 that the tongue is just such a spark. Then he goes on to elaborate on the devastating, destructive power of the tongue in four ways. First, he tells us that the tongue is a world of iniquity. And what he means is that it is a source of all kinds of of sin and of evil and wickedness. No other part of the person has such great potential for disaster and destruction. I think it's fair to say that the book of Proverbs has more to say about the tongue and about the words of a person than any other part of the human body apart from the heart. And we'll talk about that a little later. For example, Proverbs 18.21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. And again, Proverbs 21, 23, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue, keepeth his soul from troubles. So the tongue is a world of iniquity. But second, James tells us that the tongue, which is set among our members, defiles the whole body. Every part of a person is affected and is contaminated by the tongue. Not only does the tongue have potential to defile, but it actually defiles. It's a bit like entering an enclosed room that is designated for smoking. And 
when you enter the room, there happen to be full of smokers inside, puffing away. You go inside for just a few minutes, and when you come out of that room, every part of you, from head to toe, carries the smell of smoke. The smoke penetrates, it contaminates everything that is exposed to it. So the tongue, James tells us, defiles and it stains the whole body. Thirdly, James says in verse 6 that the tongue sets on fire the cause of nature or the cause of our life. This refers not just to the extent of the tongue's contamination, but also to its duration. Not only is the whole body defiled, but throughout the course of one's existence, the tongue continues to wreak havoc in a person's life. Sparks, you see, are continually flying out of our mouth, going out in every different direction and destroying things in the present and even in the future. Fourthly, James says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. This is the reason why the tongue is, is so dangerous and so devastating. It is set on fire by hell, which is a place of Satan. It's a place of the demons. In a very real sense, we can say that our tongues are satanic and demonic in that they are often used as instruments by the evil one to pollute and to corrupt and to destroy us and those around. What a terrible description of the tongue, isn't it? But James is not done. He goes on in verses 7 and 8 to talk about the uncontrollable and untamable nature of the tongue. We read, For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. So from horse riding to marine engineering to forest fires, James now takes us to the zoo, or perhaps more accurately, to the circus. And he tells us that human beings have been able to, to tame and to train all kinds or all manner of creatures, from land animals to birds to even sea creatures. Many of us would probably have seen pictures or, or videos or even real-life performances of birds talking or bears uh, riding bicycles, or elephants standing on tiny stools balancing, or tigers jumping through hoops, lions kissing people, and so on, seals playing the ball. It's quite remarkable, isn't it, to, to see wild and even dangerous animals being able to do tricks at the command of the trainer. But taming of wild animals is not something that's new. Even in those days, James says they had been able to tame all kinds of animals to do all kinds of things for human beings. Sadly though, James tells us that no human being, that is no fallen human being in his own power and in his own strength can tame the tongue. If you like, the tongue is a one-of-a-kind animal that no human being has been able to tame throughout the history of mankind. If there is anyone here this morning who thinks that he or she has no trouble controlling the tongue or that he can easily sort out any problems associated with the content and manner of his speech, then based on what the Word of God says, that person is seriously deceived and wrong about himself. 
James goes on to say at the end of verse 8 that the tongue is an unruly or a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Now you can, if you can imagine a, a hungry lion pacing back and forth in its cage, impatient and restless for its food. And if you can imagine a king cobra ready to bite and release its fatal venom, a poison, into its victim, then you have a pretty good picture of the, the destructiveness of the tongue. And just to appreciate the picture a bit more, it is said that one bite from the king cobra can kill approximately 20 men, and death can occur within 30 minutes of the bite. King cobras have also been known to kill big elephants with their poison. What a remarkable description and indeed assessment that the word of God gives concerning the tongue. But you know, even the tongue itself is not the biggest problem of mankind. The biggest problem is actually our heart, which brings us then to the fifth and final point of this message, which we are called to recognize how the tongue reveals what is inside of us. Verses, 10 and, uh, verses 9 and 10. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Not only are our tongues restless, unruly, and full of deadly poison, they are also very inconsistent and unstable. We may use our tongues to bless God on the one hand and then use it to curse men who have been created in the very likeness and image of God. The same mouth, but two totally different and indeed inconsistent sets of speech. So for example, you go to church on the Lord's Day, uh, you sing the praises of the Lord, but after the service is over, you start to gossip and speak evil of or even to curse someone whom you do not like or someone who has offended you. The test of our tongue is often not during the service or even just after the service in church when we tend to be at our best behavior. The test is often what we say afterwards, on Monday and onwards, and outside of church. Someone wrote, We can seem so nice, gentle, loving, and kind in public, but our families know who we really are. Think about it. Let's say an audio recording has been made of everything that you have said in the past one year. Would you be comfortable if we took that recording and we just uh, randomly played parts of it through the PA system right now for everyone to hear? Sure, some parts of it might sound real nice, but I think it's not difficult to slide to parts that would be embarrassing, to say the least, if not downright wicked and evil. James says at the end of verse 10, My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Indeed, this is not how it's supposed to be. Our words are supposed to be consistently pure and good and edifying and God-honoring. But sadly, they aren't. He goes on to say, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place, sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh 
uses three more illustrations from nature to, to really drive home his point about how a person's words reveal his heart. First, he asks rhetorically whether both fresh water and salt water flow from the same fountain or spring. And the answer is obviously no. The same fountain never issues two totally different kinds of water. Secondly, he asks if a fig tree can produce olives, and thirdly, if a vine can produce figs. And again, the answer is obvious to both questions. No, that is contrary to nature. And finally, he adds the phrase, so can no fountain yield both salt, water, and fresh. And what he means is that simply the source determines the nature of the water. Fresh water comes from one source, salt water from another. The product, be it the kind of water or the type of fruit, is really a reflection of the source. The same is true of the tongue, isn't it? What a person says is a reflection of what is going on underneath or inside a person. Or if you like, the tongue reveals what kind of people we are. Now what James is saying is, is essentially what his older half-brother, the Lord Jesus, had said earlier on. In Matthew chapter 12, the Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. Alright, so this morning we have seen five things from our text. The great responsibility of teaching God's word, the great importance of restraining one's tongue, the great power of the tongue, how destructive and uncontrollable the tongue is, and how the tongue really reveals what is going on in our hearts. As I mentioned earlier, there is no person here, and indeed no person in this whole world, who does not in some way struggle with his or her tongue. And by the way, when we talk about tongue, we, we should also include those words, uh, not just those words that we speak physically, but also those that we type or write in letters and emails and on social media, WhatsApp, SMSs, and so on. We all struggle with our words, don't we? Whether they be proud and arrogant words or hastily spoken and unthoughtful words or angry and bitter words or harsh and hurtful words, or sarcastic and mocking words, or impure and lewd words, or words that stir up conflict and strife, that tear down and discourage and lead to hopelessness and despair, and so on. In one way or another, we all struggle with our words and our speech. So what should we do in light of this great struggle that is presented to us? Well, first, let's say three things that we should not do before talking about what we should do. Three things that we should not do. First, we should not simply shut up and say nothing. Silence, after all, is not always golden. Furthermore, since our God is a God who speaks, we cannot properly reflect who He is by simply shutting up 
and refusing to speak or to communicate with our words. So that's not an option. Secondly, we should not simply ignore the problem or think that it's not really as serious as you make it out to be, or worse still, try to justify our ungodly speech. Don't do that. Then thirdly, we should not simply try harder to keep a watch over our tongue. Now here I need to be very careful lest I be misunderstood. I'm not saying that we should not try to guard our tongues or keep a watch over our lips and words. Of course we need to do that. But it's very important to recognize that seeking to do better in terms of our tongue and our speech is not the first thing that we should do and neither certainly not the only thing that we should be doing. We must understand that James is not trying to give us some steps for mastering our speech. He is not saying, if you follow my prescribed method, you will enjoy flawlessly controlled speech. No. In fact, notice what James is doing in this entire passage. He's doing the very opposite of that. He is telling us that we are unable of ourselves to do that, to control our tongue. Yes, we desperately need to control it because it's so very powerful and so destructive, but we are simply unable of ourselves to do it. It's beyond us. So what then should we do? Well, let me briefly mention another three things that we should do. First, brethren, let us all humble ourselves, humble ourselves to the dust, for we not only have a serious tongue problem, we also have a serious heart problem, which is even more serious. And there is absolutely nothing that we can do about it in our own strength and ability. And so there is no place at all for pride, no place for looking down on others, despising people. If we truly honestly know ourselves and examine our own tongue and our own hearts, we know that we have a world of iniquity within us and our words are so often set aflame by hell itself. So the first thing we need to do when we come to a passage like this is, is to just pause and humble ourselves and allow ourselves to feel its full weight and force, to confess its truth, fall down on our knees in humble and a contrite spirit before the Lord. But secondly, let us then look to the Lord Jesus, our Saviour, who is the only one who has a perfect tongue and a perfect heart. He is truly that man that verse 2 speaks about. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and also able to bridle the whole body. That perfect man is Christ and him alone. There is none else apart from the Lord Jesus. No one throughout his entire life did not uh, utter a single sinful word. Not even when he was cruelly and terribly provoked by his opponents and his enemies. Everything that he said was perfect. His speech, impeccable. And he lived that perfect life for you and for me. Our hope in our, in our struggle against sin, especially in this area of our speech, is found not in ourselves, not in trying harder. It's not found in putting in more effort or resolving ourselves. No, it is first of all found 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and in its all-sufficient grace. And so thirdly and finally, brethren, let us then fully rely on the strength of Christ and not on our own abilities. We can do all things, and that includes taming our tongue. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. No ability of ourselves to do it. With men, it is utterly impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so, brethren, let us daily cast ourselves in all of our weaknesses, in all of our flaws and failures, cast ourselves upon Him who is almighty and remember that His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Amen.